I'm launching a course called Successful ADHD Entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, and I've had ADHD for a little bit longer than that. Over that time, I've learned quite a few things that make me quite effective. People even call me organized. After many people asked me to, I have created a course to share what I've learned with you. Get details at neurodiversity.me course. The first run is limited to only 20 students, and the first class is April 20th, so don't put this one off neurodiversity.me slash course. My name is Michael Whitehouse, the guy who knows a guy. I'm a global connector, networking concierge, and coach. For two decades, I believed that my ADHD was a disability. Only at the age of 41 would I come to realize that my ADHD was an incredible asset, and when I leaned into that, I achieved greater success than ever before. ADHD is the engine behind my own success as a networker and coach. Over the past few years, I've spoken with thousands of entrepreneurs and found that many of them have some kind of neurodiverse diagnosis, ADHD, autism, dyslexia, OCD, and more. Like me, for many of them, their neurodiversity is indeed the very source of their success. On this show, we will change the narrative on neurodiversity. I've heard enough about the challenges and how hard it can be. I want to hear about how awesome we are. It's time to start talking about how our neurodiversity can be an asset for ourselves, our communities, and our businesses. It's time to start talking about neurodiversity superpowers. Hello and welcome once again to the Neurodiversity Superpowers podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse the guy who knows a guy himself. And our guest today is Olive Hickmott. And Olive has been studying neurodiversity. And so I'm very excited to learn some of her perspective from the outside looking in because I just sit in neurodiversity. Uh, and as some of the ADHD, the way I study pretty much is talking to people who know stuff. So that's what we're doing today. So welcome to the show, Olive. Thank you very much indeed. Great to be here. Great. So, so what uh, first got you into exploring this subject? Ah, uh, dear. Um, I mean, when I was at school, I had a real problem with literacy. And so, and don't forget, I was at school long before they invented dyslexia or uh -huh. ADHD or anything like that. And I just uh, got through school and I happened to be really good at maths. So I got a maths degree. And I had no idea that dyslexia existed for many, many decades, basically. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was doing some training in neurolinguistic programming, NLP, mm -hmm. uh, which you may have heard of. And the, um, the guy started doing a, a demonstration on the spelling strategy. And I went, how do you do that? I've never... I can't possibly do that. And then I started asking other people and they could visualize words. And so I went into my local special needs school on the Monday morning because I'm a bit of a cavalier like that and um, went, I think I've just learned something that you could do with. Can I borrow some kids? And they said, I've got, we've got hundreds who can't spell and read. Which ones would you like? <laughs> and so that was the start. That was the, my complete change from being a, corporate consultant to being a coach, a trainer, an author, and uh, absolutely permanently curious about how we can improve the life of neurodivergent people, but not making them neurotypical. I love well, it. 
yeah. So that's what, where I go. Yeah, and, and that's that's a huge thing. You know, we have some of these groups out there, like I think Autism Speaks is one of them that that wants to cure autism as opposed to simply taking care of the downsides but keeping the upsides. Who wants to lose the upsides? The upsides are amazing. They're like superpowers. You, you know, yeah. unless you're Peter Parker, you don't want your superpowers cured. You just want the, <laughs> the challenges cured. Uh, so, so who do you work with? I've over the last twenty-two years, I've worked with thousands of children. I've trained hundreds of practitioners, and they are scattered around the world now. Some of them uh, were teachers, so they've taken it into schools. Some of them were mums who wanted to find a better way for their kids. Mm-hmm. Some of them were um, some of them were mums that having helped their kids don't want to be don't want to be bothered with it anymore they've got a life of their own um and so a whole collection of people and um i'm just i'm just thrilled with how far it's got out but i would always want it to get further mm. because um we have really cracked as one of my practitioners says you've cracked the code on dyslexia and the we we have and we know exactly how to teach it. Um, we know how to teach kids to spell and read visually because I've no doubt, I mean, one of the big strengths of neurodiversity is their ability to visualize. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does that apply to you as well, Michael? It depends on what. Some things I can't visualize at all and some things I can visualize really well. Oh, well, the things you can visualize really well, you know, mm-hmm. the, um, and if you can if you've already got that skill, which is one of your strengths, then you can start visualizing words when you know mm. how. And so once you start visualizing words, um, you can also, you can start reading better. You can start spelling better. You can start understanding what you're reading better. Mm. And it is a remarkable way of changing your experience. So you keep all the good stuff. In point of fact, I think the good stuff gets better. Um, but, the, you don't have the daily grind of not being able to spell or read or do comprehension. Yeah. That could, sort of thing. To see how that could be a challenge in the modern world. Um, yeah. And that, so and is, it, is it just dyslexia you work with? Or do you work with other, other forms? No, I do. I work a lot with dyslexia. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also started a program now where I think we can stop dyslexia happening mm-hmm. um, or the literacy bits of it happening. So we still, they're still going to keep having the great skills, but they aren't going to struggle with literacy. And then I move on to ADHD and a little bit about autism. But I'm, I've ended up being this expert in, which I'm almost embarrassed to say, this, this international expert in how people learn visually. Mm. And one of the things I'd like to just say is that in schools, we're not teaching this. Um, you know, we've all got these amazing abilities to hold pictures in our head and we aren't teaching kids how to use it. In point of fact, there was a piece of research done by NASA a few decades ago when they were looking to recruit um, creative, imaginative problem solvers. As you can imagine, it's NASA. You know, they've got difficult problems to solve. And so... Um, They did this research and discovered only 2% of the adult population were creative geniuses. And so they recruited a few people for NASA. 
And then the, the consultants that they'd employed said, wonder, I wonder why only 2% of the population are creative geniuses. So they went back to the four-year-olds and mm-hmm. discovered that 98% of them were creative geniuses. Mm. And slowly as you go through school, you lose it as you grow up because you're not using it. Yeah. You, want, you know, things like problem solving and curiosity and creativity and innovation aren't really encouraged in school. Mm. And there is, they are the skills, in my opinion, that we really need in the 21st century. Yep. Um, we need people coming out of school with these skills and going into business and solving something. We've, we've got enough difficult problems on the planet, then, you know, we've, we've got ample work for these people. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And, and we were talking earlier about uh, how some of the, the coping strategies that are developed for neurodiverse people can also be valuable for neurotypical people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I think that what I teach for literacy, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it ought to be taught to all four-year-olds without mm-hmm. a shadow of doubt because it will speed up their literacy and it will, um, uh, it will work for everybody in the classroom. Oh, wow. and, and it would be great. I mean, if I, could, if I could get a hold of enough really youngsters, three or four-year-olds, that actually would start learning about visualizing and about visualizing words before they get into formal tuition, it would be absolutely great. That's my current mission at the moment is to find the little people, the tinies as I call them, and and see what they can achieve. Yeah, and I, I can see that being, being really powerful. And I think we see this in so many places across the neurodiverse realm. Um, yeah. You know, like, so with ADHD, that's, that's my particular neurodiversity, uh, one of the challenges is poor memory. So which means I know I can't trust my memory, so I don't. So there's <laughs> systems in place and you know, I take notes on things and I systematize things. Whereas a lot of neurotypical people say, oh, my memory's fine. And then they trust it and it fails as it often does because human memory is quite fallible. Yeah. So yeah. my effective memory ends up being better than the neurotypical because I know there's something I need to to compensate yeah. for and they don't. Yeah. But yeah. so a neurotypical can take my techniques and if they used it, then they'd, they'd be like, a, you know, like a computer um, because they'd have the good memory and the techniques on top of that. I've, I met a int- very interesting lady recently called Ortel Green, who has started in schools in Australia teaching many of the skills that neurotyp- neurodiverse people have got. So she's teaching problem solving. She's teaching curiosity, innovation, mindset, big picture thinking, all of that sort of stuff she's teaching. And I, I, she asked me to review her latest book. And I, I phoned her up and I said, we've got a really, really interesting thing here. You're teaching people these skills. And I'm working with a whole group of kids and adults who have already got these skills, but the schools are having a difficulty in how to cope with them because <laughs> – you know, if kids want to be curious all the time, you know, and they've got a certain period of time to do a piece of work, they haven't got time to go on and be curious, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, that's stifling their curiosity. Whereas what um, and what Autel's doing is teaching people to be that curious and 
um, I'm working with the others and going, right, how can we enable them to keep their curiosity and not lose it? Because they should give away all our secrets and superpowers. Can't let the neurotypicals have our powers. Exactly. And <laughs> I'm starting calling them. To, I, I'm not sure I like the expression superpowers. I have to own up because I'm just slightly worried about it being not, it shouldn't be limited to only neurodivergent people mm. because I'm sure a lot of neurotypical people have also yep. got these superpowers. And I don't want to produce a, um, you know, a sort of elite um, that um, think that, you know, everybody wants to be dyslexic or ADHD or something. I'm going, you know, everybody can have these skills. It's yeah. not confined to one of them. Yeah. And um, I think, I actually think um, I was doing some work recently with little ones and I go, I think that actually the little ones have been born almost with some of these things or most of them. Mm -hmm. I, I saw a, a little lad of eight recently and I went through my list of 21st century visual thinking skills and he, yeah, out of 30 of them, he'd got 22, I think it was. Wow. And I went, he's only eight. So what do we do to stop him losing them as he goes up through school? Mm. Yeah, and I, I found it. So my daughter goes to a public school here in, in Connecticut and they have a fairly progressive teaching model. And the theme of her school, I think, is play and discovery. Um, oh, great. And and it is highly likely she has ADHD, but she has not been diagnosed or even considered for it because the way they're running the school, they don't get. So I don't think people with ADHD have a learning disorder. I think schools have a teaching disorder. Um, totally. But, but this school doesn't seem to have the teaching disorder because every 40 minutes they move them to a different activity. They have different physical spaces in the classroom. Like they're doing all these things that are built around the way kids learn that make it, you know, make it work a lot better, that makes things like ADHD not really as noticeable. Because um, as I'd say, ADHD is the inability to pay attention to boring things. Absolutely. Uh, so be Absolutely. less boring, and I won't have trouble paying attention. I can, I can watch a movie for three hours, no problem, because it's not boring. But I can't listen to someone dull talk for three minutes. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you're, if, you're get, if you've got into play and you've got into elements of self-directed learning where kids can actually do what they're really interested in doing mm -hmm. and be curious and explore everything about, I don't know, volcanoes or whatever it is that they're yep. interested in, then they, you will not find them um, not being able to pay attention because that's their particular um, area that, of great interest to them. As, um, as Ken Robinson used to say, um, bless him, was um, their... Their elements, you can find their passion and mm -hmm. their, their their elements will follow. Yep. And and the thing, I, I realized this years ago, that you'll learn whatever you need to learn to do the thing you really want to do. When Absolutely. I, was, I, I don't know, I think I was 12, 13, 14 years old. I decided I wanted to, to code a computer game um, that would be like an Asteroids type game that involved flying around the screen. Well, to fly around a screen, you need trigonometry. Because you yeah. have to know the the component vectors, and I had no idea what trigonometry was. I just looked at it and says, "So I've got a circle that's pointing this way, and it's some part up and some part to the side. How do I figure that out?" And someone's like, "That's a sine and a cosine." I'm like, "That's a what? What's what are those? Yeah. That's trigonometry. Trigonometry. I'm going to learn trigonometry, and really, trigonometry is learning 
sine is y, cosine is x, and that's what you plug into the computer. But like I learned trigonometry because I needed it for something, which made it really interesting. You know, kids will go learn calculus, they'll learn advanced writing strategies, they'll learn whatever they need to do the thing they need to do if it's interesting. But you think about the class, the kid asking the teacher, when will I ever need this? And absolutely. And I feel like any teacher who can't answer that question for something they're teaching shouldn't be teaching or at least should be better at it because like, why would you teach something you don't need to know? What's the point of that? What do we need to do the test? Because and the state tells me I have to teach this to you. It's all controlled by the pedagogy and the curriculum that's in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to a woman recently who is the um, uh, education minister in Sweden, and she said, I'm working on the curriculum in Sweden for as long as I, we're, we're still in power and I've still got this job. She said, it's ridiculous. We have a curriculum which, is only accessi- which isn't accessible to 10 to 15% of the population. Mm-hmm. And when you come down to that, we've got a pedagogy which is built into the curriculum and the government is going, this is exactly what you should be doing. And the, we've, why, have we, uh, why does the government know exactly what children should be learning? When you've become an adult, what do you do? You do the opposite. You go away and learn additional stuff. You read stuff. You go on training courses when you want them, mm-hmm. where you want them, and for something that you're going to use them for. Yeah. Um, with children in school, it's the exact opposite. Yep. And we don't live in a factory um, world anymore that mm-hmm. we are educating children to go and work in factories. We're educating children to be curious and innovative and solve problems, please. Yeah, that's my view. <laughs> yeah, no, and that that's that's huge. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, t- I took all the regular history courses in high school, and I remember almost none of it because it was taught the way you learn because you learn from books. Reading from books is the way that we learn because it's how we did it for two thousand years because video hadn't been invented yet, audio hadn't yeah. been invented yet. But I started listening to podcasts about history. I have learned more in in an hour a week listening to history podcasts. <laughs> than I learned in 300 hours of high school and high school and middle school classes because it's presented in a format that sticks to what sticks in my brain. Um, but but if, if you said to your teacher, I'm, I'm not going to read the book, I'm just going to listen to podcasts on this topic, they'd be like, what? No, that's not learning. That's just, that's entertainment. That's not how we learn. It's just, it's such a shame. I mean, I... I heard a, um, I got sent a note today from um, Singapore Education and mm-hmm. they've just come across one thing, which I, I don't know if they've just done it or whether it was a few years ago, but they've decided not to um, compare children's results with each other. Mm. They will measure their performance against how they are doing and how they are progressing, but they yeah. will not compare one child against the other and i had to laugh because when i went to school which is many decades ago my head teacher had exactly that rule we were we did tests at the end of the year but we were not allowed to compare ourselves with other kids mm. and so maybe that's how i've grown up the way i have i don't know 
Yeah. But it was um, really interesting. And to go with it, they were deciding that they weren't going to test children until they were over eight years old, which oh, I thought sense. was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I was cheering. Yep. Well, and, and that's the thing is, is, is even in, in most things in real life, when you when you measure against other people, it doesn't usually serve any great benefit. Uh, it, it's fine. We look at some of the the national leader companies, you know, Walmart and and Target or Ford and Ford and GM and Volkswagen, and they'll say, "Oh, GM is the leading car company, and Volkswagen's the the second leading car company, and Toyota's number three, or you know, whatever the numbers are." But so one makes a gazillion d billion dollars, and another way it's a slightly smaller gazillion d billion dollars. And the third one makes an even smaller gazillion d billion dollars. You can't say you lose when you're in fourth place in that race. Yeah. And and likewise, you know, my business, when it hits six figures, I know a lot of people who make more money than I do, but I can't say I'm losing compared to them. Like, it's not a meaningful comparison because I'm successful on my path. They're successful on their path. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how I'm doing compared to them. It yeah. matters how I'm doing compared to my goals and my standard of living and what I'm trying to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and of course, never mind, like at least money is a universal axis. A kid who's got bad grades but is really good at art or rhetoric or whatever, who cares if they've got bad grades? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I love that concept that they're getting away from from measuring them measuring them versus each other um and so 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 do you you have any stories of of people who are uh neurotypical who that's really helped them to excel not just they they overcame their neuro their not neurotypical their neurodivergence not just they overcame their neurodivergence but that their neurodivergence really was the key to their success in whatever way they measure it um, I think actually, I think I'll give you a quick story about me. When I left university with a maths degree that I never used from the day I left, um, <laughs> I became a software engineer, and I was really good at it. And we were implementing software in pathology laboratories um, where you have your blood taken out your arm and it goes away for testing. Mm. And um, it was in the, I mean, it's decades ago, this, in the early days of, of computing, really. And we were doing all sorts of clever things. And I quite frequently got into the problem with um, the, the, the 200 odd programs that ran on this computer as to they were making a mistake on the patient's records. And I would stand there in the computer room and go, okay, you guys, who did it this time? And <laughs> And I sort of reverse engineered it all the way back to what what on earth could have caused this problem, corrected it and came back again. And I did that for the first, I don't know, four years of life in in corporate life. Hmm. And I think that software engineering or re-engineering has actually really served me really well, that I can look at a problem like dyslexia or ADHD and go, Okay, so what's causing that? I'm going to go backwards to what's causing it that you've, you've, this has happened to you. And then did it actually happen to you or did it happen or did, could we have avoided it happening to you altogether? Mm-hmm. And that's how I've reverse engineered dyslexia. Oh, and um, um, it's, I think it was, didn't occur to me till recently that 
That's how I work. I have this jigsaw puzzle brain, which fits everything together, goes away and finds disparate facts, and then puts it all together, does a bit of genius, and then goes, let's try this out and see what's going to happen. And just like software engineering, really. Hmm. So that's one of my stories. Um, let me see. Um, another one with ADHD. Oh, uh, I, this is this is just so funny. I must tell you this story. This lad had very, very good mental imagery, which is almost all of my clients I have ever found have got exceptional mental imagery. And so he's sitting in my office and he's only about 10 and he starts laughing. <laughs> he's going like this. And his dad looks at him a bit sternly and says, would you behave? You're meant, you know, you're meant to be here to paying attention. And I, sa- I said to him, hang on just a minute. Can you just tell me what you're doing? Why are you sitting there bursting in laughter? And, of course, this is what he does in school as well. Um, so I said, what do you th- what's going on in your head? What are you thinking about? He went, um, uh, it's tennis. And I went, okay, it's tennis. What's funny about tennis? He said, uh, well, it's um, dogs. He said, I've got two Alsatians playing two cockapoos, doubles in tennis. And by this time, he's in absolute hysteria. And this lad is destined for a career in cartooning or something. He's got such a vivid imagination. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. But, of course, when he does that in school, it's not totally um, uh, acceptable um, that he should be thinking about dogs playing tennis well in the middle of a science lesson or something. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I, yeah, think it's, I think it is... It really is about the more you can focus on the good stuff, yeah, then you can work out what to do with the rest of it. Well, and that thing that that your instinct is to is to be like, oh, you're going to be a cartoonist or something along those lines, as opposed to you're going to be a problem in class. Who cares what he's in class? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that's that's where people get in trouble. Is school is a means to an end. Like it doesn't matter how well a child behaves in class. The point is the school prepares them. School should serve the child and prepare them for success later on. And I think schools have put the cart before the horse that the child is supposed to serve the school and behave mm-hmm. in the school, which does not prepare the child at all. So thinking of it that way as, well, how can this school serve this child to capitalize on this amazing visualization skills and amazing creativity versus how can this child serve the child does not have to serve the school. It's not his job. Yeah. He's the customer. He's there to receive. Yeah, and they, I mean, I do think, I see it in all seriousness, we have so many difficult problems to deal with at the moment Mm -hmm. that we need all the creative, imaginative brains we can get our hands on. Yeah. And I was delighted when I saw something, I saw a post late tonight, I can't remember what it was exactly, and they said, oh, they've been designing a house to be built on, Mars, that was it, mm-hmm. a, a two-story house to be built on Mars, and they got the they got various technical experts, and they got kids involved as well. And I thought, oh, great, because the the kids' wild imagination at the age of four or six or whatever is going to come up with much better ideas, probably than the astronauts, mm-hmm. you know, themselves. They'll they'll do the critical reasoning once they've come up with. The kids have come up with all the loony ideas. 
Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. The kid's the one who says, why not? Or what if yep. we... Yeah, exactly. And no one's going to tell them, or they're not going to be able to say, ah, I tried that before. Damn, yeah, exactly. It didn't work. <laughs> yep, that, that's that's brilliant. So yeah, I, I love the uh, love the story, and I love the 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 concept you bring to it. You're always looking at what is good about this, what is the the asset, the strength that is is hidden in here. So if people want to connect with you, how can they how can they learn more about you? Um, the and I would just like to make more one more comment. I've forgotten to make. Oh yes. Don't look at behaviors. Look at mm. what's causing triggering the behavior. Oh yes, I'm glad you said I, that. Uh, I am completely disinterested in behaviors, almost however bad they are. I go, what happened before that caused them to do that? Mm -hmm. And maybe even what happened before that to cause that one to cause that one. Mm -hmm. Because that's where you can do something. You can, you can stop. You can, you can help behaviors by doing something about the triggers. Yeah. Behavior is not a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Behavior is a result of something else that's happened. Sorry, oh, you said what? Yeah, you said, no, that's okay. That was, that was worth waiting for. That was a, that's a really <laughs> great point that, yeah, yeah. yeah you can force the behavior down and, yep. you know, physically punish a child or, or whatever. And then they, then they kind of bend themselves into that shape, causing whatever damage that causes. And sure, yep. you get an obedient child at what cost. Yep. Uh, or you can figure and out what's causing behavior and, and address it yeah and there is some really simple things there is breathing um have you ever heard anything about breathing in for adhd uh i've heard i, I believe so um if you are a if you are a mouth breather you are likely to uh, make adhd worse hmm. so if you're a nose breather in and out through your nose gently breathing your like your brain is likely to calm down a bit so that you can focus a bit better. Oh. Now, now that's completely free. You know, it doesn't cost anybody anything to try starting to be a nose breather. And actually, in COVID land, it's really a good idea anyway because it kills off more of the bugs. Oh, makes um, sense. And so there, there is really simple things we found like that. And if anybody wants to know more about it, um, I've got a website at empoweringlearning.co.uk. Okay. And. If you, um, I do, I'm, I'm moving a lot of my training materials onto a training platform now. Uh, and um, it's, you can find it through www.visualkids.co.uk. And you'll see there's quite a number of free classes that I run uh, for an hour a week um, about mental imagery and about dyslexia and about ADHD. Anybody's more than welcome to join those and see what they think. And you can all, you can come along with your questions and find out more. That's great. All right. And of course, both those links will be in the show notes, the empoweringlearning.co.uk and visualkids.co.uk. And thank you, Olive, for coming, coming on the show. It's been great to get your perspectives, experience, and knowledge, and all that good stuff. And of course, I always enjoy a good British accent. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, be pleased to come back and talk again. Okay. All the best with your podcasts. Thank you. Do, do let me know where they're going to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. This has been the Neurodiversity Superpowers Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. Sign up to get every episode at neurodiversitysuperpowers.me. 
Join our Facebook group on facebook.com slash groups slash neurodiversity superpowers. Thank you so much for joining us, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm launching a course called Successful ADHD Entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, and I've had ADHD for a little bit longer than that. Over that time, I've learned quite a few things that make me quite effective. People even call me organized. After many people ask me to, I have created a course to share what I've learned with you. Get details at neurodiversity.me course. The first run is limited to only 20 students, and the first class is April 20th, so don't put this one off neurodiversity.me slash course.